0: Welcome to episode 5 of Melee's Turnwheel, the series that takes a retroactive look at the Fire Emblem series, chapter by chapter. I'm your host, I Ayman Melee Kirby, and today we're taking it back to chapter 4 of Fire Emblem Genealogy of the Holy War. Yeah, uh, the upload schedule got a little fucked up, <laughs> just because I've been uh, I've had stuff more stuff to do in real life. It's probably going to become a lot more irregular from here on out. Uh, I'm recording this before episode 4 has even been put up, so I'm probably going to put these up at the same time. I don't have a lot of opportunities to record, so I decided I would get this done and then edit and maybe just put them both up at the same time, I don't know. So sorry about that, but nothing I can do about it. Only real relevant news is, I mean, it's hero stuff, and I don't, like I said, I don't talk about heroes, but uh, this is some stuff that even I have context for. Thracia units, we don't get a lot of those in heroes, so it's cool to see more. I think it was uh, Asvel, uh, Ronin... Sarah and I don't remember the last one, but it was someone, someone cool. But that's really it. I just you know wanted to give brief mention to that because it's cool. We don't get a lot of Thracia characters in here. We don't got a lot of Thracia recognition in general, which is a damn shame. I guess I'll update you guys on the Sacred Stones. Let's uh, not let's play uh, Iron Man that I was doing and I lost <laughs> after talking all that shit about it being the easiest game in the series, which I still do believe. But I I, I think that. It's interesting when you play an Iron Man that you know the the chapters that you know to prepare for are a lot of the times kind of easier. Like I was prepared for for Phantom Ship, I was prepared for for the the Fog of War map with the Halberd Fighter. I was prepared for Chapter 14, Ephraim Route with all the Berserk Stabs. I had plans and I was good to go for that stuff. It's like it's like Pokemon, like doing a Nuzlocke. If you you know you know that this big fight coming up, you gotta have a plan for it, and if you do, you can deal with it. But the random Ace Trainer with the Gyarados on the road that sweeps your whole team, you know, and that for me that was a couple chapters, 15, actually right in a row, 15, 16, and 17 were all chapters I did not anticipate being difficult, but I lost a few people, and then in chapter 17 I just lost outright, because that one, that that's the map where they really start throwing mostly promoted enemies at you. Uh, I think 16 kind of has, like, an even mix, but it's, it's like, more unpromoted enemies. But in 17, they just go all out. There's heroes, there's paladins, there's wyvern, lords, sages, all that. So, they're—yeah, they weren't pulling any punches at that point. And I ended up losing. I, I probably could have beaten the chapter. I lost, like, five guys, and I was going to lose more. So, instead of being safe and, like, waiting a turn to, to do some more chip damage to Leon— I ended up banking on a 48% miss because he one-shot Ephraim and had a 48% chance to hit, which in true hit, I think is like 45 or something like that. But I I ended up getting hit and I lost, so, uh, you know, at least I went out doing a sick-ass maneuver. It's a fun game. I really like Secret Stone. I might attempt another Iron Man run at some point. I'm not, like I said, I'm not that good at Fire Emblem, you know, and I think think that when I have a plan and I, I prepare, I go in and I do well. Uh, I didn't, you know, those those hard chapters that I was mentioning. I didn't lose anyone on on Phantom Ship, which was insane to me. I didn't lose anyone in in Father and Son, so I think that I just need to bring that level of preparation for every map, which I wasn't doing, which is unfortunate, and that's how I ended up losing. Like uh, in sixteen, there were some Purge Sages that ended up killing Tethys and I think Kyle or something like that. Yeah, um, so yeah, I just uh, and if I do another Iron Man in that game, I'll I'll know what to prepare for. And I'll plan around it. Or if I do an Iron Man of like, I might, I might try FE7 next. I think I still have like an active FE6 Iron Man file going. I didn't lose, but I, I lost a lot of units. I might try that at some point, I don't know. That's pretty much it for stuff that's been going on for me. So I guess we can go straight into actual discussion of FE4. Not our chapter right away. I don't want to talk about our chapter immediately. I want to start with something different. Because I feel like I have been very scattershot in my analysis of this game. I kind of, I kind of, I'm all over the place, you know, we're talking about different things and I'm like, oh, I like this, I don't like that. Uh, And I want to make sure that my impressions on the game are clear. I think I might do this every few episodes and just kind of take a debrief of like what's been going on, uh, how I've been liking it and, and what I would do better or what I've, what I think is really well done. So, for FE4, I've always held this game up as being the best narrative in the series. If not the best, then, like, easily, like, top four-ish. I mean, like, Thracia has a really good one. Uh, Path of Radiance has a really good one. With some big asterisks, I would also say that Radiant Dawn has a good story. But this is definitely, like, if it's not the best, then it's kind of, like, struggling with those three for the top spot. You know, they're all kind of in the same echelon of, of greatness for me but I was surprised by I'm gonna be I'm gonna be frank here how bad this game's story starts off because it's not good and to be to for the purpose of this of what I'm about to talk about I want to clarify that I'm gonna talk about chapter three separately because I think that that's where things start to get a little bit better but for prologue through through chapter two the story is just not that good and I did not remember it being that mediocre and I know that that's kind of a, a, a opinion that I think is gonna annoy a lot of people because I think that most people hold this game's story in high regard and I've played chapter three I played chapter four and what are, from what are, I remember of chapter five and onward it gets there chapter four has incredible narrative it's it's very potent very powerful story now before that though (laughs) let me just run through a list of of complaints that i've made that i think kind of get lost when you separate them but when you put them together kind of paint a a, not a great picture of this game's narrative so we had that really annoying intro narration which i criticized for dropping too many names and more importantly i think and i'm not sure if i drove this home enough when i was talking about it in episode one it didn't convey enough useful information. It wasn't necessarily that it had too much information. It kind of did, but it was just more so that they were they were. I would have probably kept the same amount of information, but just taken out all of the the names of like like Claude. We did not need to know about. We didn't need to know about King Asmer or or we honestly we didn't even need to know about Byron and Ring. Just get them out of there. Reptor and Lingbolt, honestly like like. I know I said that reptor and Lingbolt deserved more screen time, but I think we could, you know, I, I think you could get them out of that intro narration because they don't really accomplish anything by being there. And instead, talk about the countries. Talk about Darna. Like, the, the Darna is mentioned, I think, very briefly in that, like, opening timeline. But outside of that, I don't know anything about Darna yet in the story. I mean, I know, personally, because I've played the game before. But if you're playing this for the first time... And you hear Isaac has invaded Darna. Well, who cares that there's no context for that in the story? Why is that a big deal? Why does Granville care? Who? What is Isaac? What is Isaac's relationship to this? Do they care about Darna? What are the other countries like? Quan is from Le- Le- Leinster, Leonster? I'm gonna start calling it Leinster because that's easier to say. But Quan is from Leinster. Where is Leinster? <laughs> what is what is their opinion on all this? There's no talk about the conflict between Leinster and Thracia. I think they like Quan maybe mentions it very early in like a conversation, maybe in like chapter one. But I, I honestly couldn't even tell you if that's true. But that's a huge part of chapter five and gen two, and even the next game is about the conflict between Thracia and Leinster. And I don't need to know all the details about it, but give me something, right? Give me something to sort of get myself, get get me interested in the world, and the game just doesn't do that. It gives you the bare facts, the bare minimum of what you need to understand what's going on right now, and spoon feeds you the rest as it goes forward. I don't, I don't think that that's great storytelling, to be quite honest, but that's forgivable, right? Because maybe they just didn't want to shove all this information at you in the first part of the game. I get that, that's fine. But there's it, it goes beyond that. That's just the first of many complaints. Chapter one is boring narratively. I mean there's some there there's some explanation of of what's going on with Isaac in the conversation between Era and Quan. That's that's cool, that's interesting. But other than that, it's like Sandima is an incredibly boring villain. He's just scream a worm tongue. He's just Grima a worm tongue, except not not slimy and Fun to hate or anything. He's just nothing. He's just a piece of cardboard. And Manford comes in and is maybe a little bit better, but not really. They give a big info dump on what their plan is instead of letting it be like something that, that they... like for all this stuff that they spoon-feed you, for some reason they need to tell you that explicitly right out of the gate and leave nothing vague and ambiguous there. The way that I've I've moaned on about this, I think almost every episode since it happened, Deirdre and Sigurd meeting and falling in love is just so dumb. At best, it paints them as being very irresponsible, unlikable, kind of dumb characters, and at worst it's just out of character and makes no sense for them as characters. Again, cannot stress this enough, I really really like their relationship, I think their interactions are fantastic and adorable and wholesome, and I love them. but had to, there has to have been a better way to get them to meet and fall in love with each other. Anything. Anything except what is in the game. <laughs> and then chapter two has nothing going on really either. It introduces Luin. that's cool. It introduces a few concepts, it, it, like, it characterizes Eldagon a little bit, you know, some stuff like that, but I think people are kind of enamored by the idea of political intrigue being force in these games but what does that really mean take us take a step back and think about it what does that mean if we're talking about it from the perspective of chapter two that game has a lot of corrupt nobles right what is the difference i ask between a corrupt noble sending bandits to attack villages because he's greedy and wants money and power and a bandit attacking villages because he's greedy and wants money and power. What's the difference? Narratively. It doesn't... It, there It is none. The fact that one of them is a noble is interesting because... It shows that power corrupts, I, I guess. I mean, like... That's, like, one of the most overdone story cliches ever. And, I mean, I know this was an early game in the series, but even before... Even before video games, even before fucking movies. This has been, like, a common theme in, in narrative since the beginning of time. And it's supposed to be interesting because Fire Emblem does it. Now, some of the political maneuvering, especially for w- with what's going on with Arvis, and some of what happens with Sigurd, is cool, and I like that. But I and I don't necessarily know that people... Um, I haven't heard people say, like, oh, I really like Chapter 2 because it's very politically motivated and there's a lot of political intrigue going on. I don't hear people talk about that, but I hope they don't. That's the only that's the only thing that I can think of that you could defend this chapter with because otherwise it's just nothing. It's just Sigurd attacking corrupt nobles because they're corrupt and want to fight him. Eldagon has some has some interesting character moments, but that's it. That's really it. There's nothing else going on. There's some stuff even in these first three chapters that I do like I like Shannon, I like Aira, I like Quan and Ethlyn, mostly just the characters. The plot itself is... I can't really think of any part of the plot that I think has been good so far. Uh, Talking about chapter two and earlier. I'm really racking my brain here, but I just don't think that there's anything. It's just nothing. It's just a nothing story. It's like and I know that it's just cha- it's the first 3 chapters but proportionally you got to understand that's like the first 5 chapters of Sacred Stones say or the first 6 chapters of FE7. In the first 5 chapters of Sacred Stones we know we're introduced to a main character with personality. I mean, I know Erica's kind of milk toast, but she does have a personality and some dialogue and you can get supports that flesh her out even more. Even with all of Sigurd's dialogue, he doesn't really have a whole lot of... I guess there's some stuff in Chapter 2 that characterizes him pretty well. So I'll give him that. We know the villains. We know roughly their plan, but there's enough left up to interpretation and enough left unsaid that it still has a little bit of a mystery element to it. Like, we know they want to destroy the Sacred Stones, but we don't know why they want to destroy the Sacred Stones. We don't know what Leon's role in all of this is. We don't know... If Ephraim's okay, we don't know what he's doing. We there's some intrigue about where the monsters are coming from. There's some intrigue of and foreshadowing about Erica's bracelet. Seth has some really cool moments in the story. I guess that's more of a character thing, so I'll, I'll ignore it. We establish ally like an ally country like Frelia is on their side. We get six, seven. I guess eight if you count Leon, but at that point he's not really a villain. So I'll say seven villains that all have, except for I guess Glenn, who's kind of boring throughout the whole game, they have different perspectives and different motivations, and you can tell that they're all reacting differently to this. Just just from their dialogue alone, you get a really great sense of their personality. And part of this might be a translation thing. I've talked a lot about how much I love this translation patch, but... I don't know. Maybe maybe if this game was officially localized by Nintendo, they'd take more liberties and put more character into these characters, I guess. But, like, you look—you just read Walter's dialogue, and you know he's insane, he's full of himself, and he wants Erica really badly. If you read Kalik's dialogue, you know he's kind of, like, kind of a, a goofy guy, kind of, uh, again, arrogant, but also just wants to be entertained reeves like this creepy old guy selena and dusel are more reserved and kind of like debating about whether they should do it dusel's kind of like no we shouldn't do it and selena's like we have to obey our king you know it's it's all of this stuff gets set up in the early chapters i think all of that is before chapter five i could be wrong but i'm pretty sure it is fe4 just has none of that we don't have any interesting villains Ar- the one thing, like, if you're gonna reveal that Arvis is a villain, have him in the story, have him doing things, have him ha- he has a charismatic personality and some interesting perspectives on all of this, have him front and center instead of cutting away to Manfroy cut away to, Al- uh, to Arvis because I know they're trying to keep him under wraps so that we don't, like, find out what his motivations are, but you can still keep his motivations hidden and still have him in the plot, just have him interact with Reptor Or Manfroy or something. So that he's still like putting on the act. And and still kept like left up in the air. Like what is he actually doing? And then also if you're going to explain all the plot. All all the plot. Then talk about Darna. Talk about what happened there. Talk about why the crusaders are so important. What is holy blood? None of this is explained. Like it's 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 easy to forget I think. Because we know. Like if you're playing this game for a second time or a third time, like I am, then you know all of this. So it's easy to forget that the game isn't explaining it to you. It's like, oh, it's Holy Blood. I know what Holy Blood is. It's because they got blessings from the dragons at Darna, and Darna is a big deal because it's where they fought off the Tier Empire, right? We know that, but the game doesn't tell us that until like Gen 2, like mid-Gen 2. And it's stuff that I would want to know right now because it's it's important right now. Like, what does having Holy Blood mean for Sigurd? You know, like, what is what does that do? Why, does, why is that important? I don't know. Chapter 3 kind of changes this. Chapter 3 starts to have good plot. It's not perfect. I've talked about why I think Eldegon in that chapter is a little weird. Uh, and I don't like how incons- how I guess not inconsistent, but it's like... All it takes is one conversation with Lachesis... To completely change his whole worldview, right? It's He says, we're knights, which means we have to fight each other. And then if you talk to him with Laquesas, he says, I'm a knight, so I have to help my friend. And it's not like Laquesas appeals to that side. I guess, I guess she kind of does. But she doesn't appeal to his idea or his concept of what being a knight means. She just says, don't fight Sigurd. And he's like, okay. If he had said, like, okay, well, I think that a true knight would do this... But maybe I'm just too much of a soft heart to be a a true knight or something like that. I don't know. It's just subtle stuff like that that just—it would make him come across as a lot more interesting and a lot more cohesively written, instead of just one conversation being enough to completely redefine his outlook. I don't know. But that's minor stuff. There is some—and obviously the bandit pirate stuff that I talked about extensively last chapter— That's stupid. Not a big deal. It's just an excuse to get Bridget into the conflict. I'm fine with it. There is some good stuff here, though. Uh, It introduces Thracia, which is cool, and some village dialogue explains kind of what they're all about. I like that. Deirdre gets kidnapped and really sets this grim undertone, especially if you know that she doesn't come back. And all these people are talking about, oh, we'll find her, we'll find her. No, you won't. For all intents and purposes, she's dead. The end, where... Sigurd kind of has like his existential crisis because this entire time he's been fighting for his country and now his country has betrayed him and Deirdre's gone. So, what does he have? It's like a. (laughs) Ah! No, this isn't happening. There's no reason for me to go on. What? What am I fighting for? So, chapter three starts to pick it up, and I want to make it clear. That I do like chapter three and I like where the story is going now. Chapter four, great. I loved it, and we'll talk about that, but I I really just needed to get this off of my chest because I feel like I've been kind of giving criticisms here and there and haven't really laid out a whole picture. The first three chapters of this game, story wise, are just not that good. And I don't I don't think that it should be ignored. And I, I'm not necessarily saying that this game, at the end of the day, isn't still going to have one of the best narratives. But I'm definitely going to get to the end of this and remember, yeah, this was cool, but it took us a while to get here. And that's, you know, that's not, that's not great writing, honestly. And I, 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 I don't think that it should be overlooked when talking about this game. Because, again, it's only three chapters, but because each chapter is so long and such a significant part of the story... It's, it's the first quarter of the game, basically. Okay, I think that's my rant over. Uh, Gameplay-wise, I should talk about that, too, because I've been kind of scattershot about that as well. I like the gameplay. I really like the money and inventory system. I like the love system. I like the arena. All these, all these things that are unique components of what makes this game fun and enjoyable. It's all here, and it's all great, and I love it. Um... I think it's going to start to get maybe wear a little thin as the maps get bigger and I start to get a little more tired of of what's going on. But yeah, it's uh, I have no way of knowing that chapter four was still fine in terms of gameplay. It wasn't great, but it was fine. Yeah, I think that that is everything I wanted to say uh, just to kind of capture my thoughts. Maybe I should have done this at the end of last chapter or something, since that would be like, what, a third of the way through. Now we're like five out of 12 chapters in or something. It doesn't fit, but it doesn't matter. It's whatever. Okay, so with all of that said, I think that we can move into Chapter 4, titled Dance in the Skies. So the opening text crawl for this talks about how uh, Selyse was established by the Wind Crusaders' SED. And there's been a few translations on that name but I think they've kind of settled on Sed. They really, even in this game, they really wanted to hammer home the idea that said, that Sed said is uh, Lewin's canonical son. <laughs> they really just wanted you to know. And then of course in Theratia they made it explicit. There's some Lewin backstory about how his dad died and his uncles wanted to take the throne and Lewin said, peace out, I'm out of here, I don't care. Stuff we already knew basically, but it's, it's nice to have that refreshed in our minds since it might have been a while so we come in on Sigurd talking to Rana who is the queen of Selyse and she has apparently been advocating his innocence she's been sending letter after letter to Grand Vale but she hasn't gotten a reply back and nothing's been coming of it and Sigurd seems to be convinced that it's Reptor that's intercepting the letters and stopping them from getting to the king fair assumption I think Sigurd's mad, he's angry, but Rana kind of calms him and she says, uh, hatred will only destroy you from within. This is kind of a, a, a recurring theme in this chapter is that Solis just is just super chill. I mean, it's cold and snowy, but that's not what I mean. It's very, uh, the Wind Crusader and the people who follow him kind of had this philosophy of go with the flow, be at peace, preach peace to the world, don't choose violence. And that seems to be what she's sort of advocating for Sigurd. Unless there's no other choice. Sometimes you just got to do what needs doing. And, you know, I don't think that that said would hesitate to on-site Loptir or anything. But in general, that's their philosophy. There's no mention here. Sigurd, at the end of last chapter, says, why is Queen Rana sheltering us? And Manya said, no time, no time. We got to get out of here. Fair enough. But... In this chapter, there's no talk about why she's doing it either. I mean, we're left to assume that she's just really, really nice. uh, And I don't have any problems with believing that. I just thought it was weird. (laughs) Um, I mean, to be fair, it takes place like one year after chapter three. So I don't think that it would be reasonable for him to be like after a whole year being like, why are you doing this? You know, (laughs) like just wouldn't make any sense. They would have talked about it before then. Rana gives some good news. There has apparently been a long-lost daughter of Kurth found, and it's definitely her daughter, it's not some bullshit, they're not trying to be like, you know, oh, it's the daughter that fell off of the back of a truck, you know, it is definitely Kurth's daughter, because she has, like, the brand of Naga somewhere on her body, and the king was able to see that and recognize, yes, that, like, she is heir to our bloodline. I think, I don't know if it's ever explicitly stated, I'm pretty sure that the brand of Naga became the brand of the Exalt. You know, from Awakening. Which is weird. Don't ask me how that happens. But apparently that's the case. I, I, it could just be like a fun little nod or an Easter egg. I don't know. But it does take place in the same universe. Like canonically. So it's, it's possible. Oh, and this daughter is marrying Arvis. That's important. So Arvis, for all intents and purposes, is going to become, I guess not the king... But, like, the prince of... Like, their their son is going to inherit the entire kingdom. And Rana says, oh, the couple's so happy together. And then Sigurds kind of, like, trails off. And Rana apologizes because she forgot that he was still looking for his wife. Or rather, that he hadn't had the chance to go look for her, even though she's been gone for a year. Uh, he's still holding out hope that he will find her. But he's very sad about it. She gives a warning that Thove which is a, uh, a castle in the north controlled by one of Lewin's uncles, is, seems like they might attack soon. And she wants to send reinforcements to help, but she really can't because there's another castle controlled by Lewin's other uncle that will attack Selice if they get an opportunity. Selice being like the capital. This is the first, I think, area, at least where this gets confusing, but Selice in this context refers to the main capital city, not the country. So the the capital castle. I'll start calling it that. I guess the capital. So uh, Lewin's other uncle will attack the capital if Rana sends troops to reinforce Sigurd. Basically, as she's about to leave, and I guess the scene would be different if Lewin was dead, but I guess it wouldn't happen at all. But Lewin pops in and says, "Hey, aren't you forgetting someone? You don't want to talk to your son?" And she's mad. She's real mad at him. Understandably, she did run away and shirk his responsibilities for two whole years. She's very pissed off about that, but uh, they kind of have a f- uh, interaction that's funny, and she, he, Lewin is kind of a jackass and says, "Ah, come on, mom, you can forgive me, right?" He's just being a, a, like a like a dickhead basically, and <laughs> Rana's not very happy about it. She does tell him to come to the capital as soon as possible. So keep that in mind. People people say, I guess I'll I guess I'll talk about this now. This is a hint for Luin to go to the capital to get Forseti, which is his legendary tome. People say that this is easy to miss. I don't think so. If you're reading the story, not only does it say it here, it actually reminds you later on too. So I don't think that it is, I, I think it's properly hinted at in my opinion. Then she leaves and Manya shows up Manya was the Pegasus Knight from the end of last chapter who, uh, she talks to Lewin briefly and says, uh, you know, she puts on a front of being mad at you, but she's actually really happy. In fact, this is the happiest I've seen her since you have left, basically, now that you're back. And they kind of have a fun little interaction. Uh, Lewin knows Manya. This is important for later, but they kind of have an established relationship. She's the head of the Silesian uh, Pegasus Knights. That's established here. So she's kind of like the head. She's like the uh, very important knight in the kingdom. Oh, and she, even though Aaron is also a Pegasus Knight of Selyse, Manya decides to let her stay with Sigurd to help him out. This is where Quan, Ethlyn, and Finn leave, and they promise to bring back reinforcements to help Sigurd, uh, if it comes to that, but... You know they just they just need to get out of there because they've been away from home for so long that I think you know he decided that it was it was time to go back, and yeah so hopefully you got everything you wanted on them, uh, if not you know they won't be back for a while so, well I mean Finn will Finn will be, won't be back for a while the other two won't be back at all so, oh well hope you hope you uh, I mean their kids will have their items so it'll be fine, so at this point Thove the northern castle decides to attack. And there's a cutaway to Zaxxon, which is the eastern castle that says that the guy there, I think his name is Dakar, says that they made a deal with Granville and Andre of House Jungby is coming, who is, uh, of course, Brigid and Aedine's brother. And that's where the game starts. Maybe that one, maybe that comes like right after, I don't know. So your first goal is to capture the castle in the north. And it's actually a bit of a hike to get up there. Uh, There's nothing in between you and no castles to capture between you and there this is another really infamous level if you uh if you're not paying attention to the dialogue i wasn't actually my first playthrough and i missed i missed the fact that uh i guess we'll, we'll talk about this later we'll talk about this later but basically this is not a fun section of the game in general honestly i don't think it's very good but if you if you miss some certain dialogue pieces it can be horrendous Sylvia and Aaron have a conversation here that is very cute. Basically, it's just Sylvia saying, hey, Aaron, do you like Lewin? And Syl- and uh, Aaron's like, no, no, I don't. She gets flustered because she, obviously she does, of course. So Sylvia's like, all right, well, I guess I'll just go hit on him then and, and you know, get him to be in a relationship with me. And Aaron's like, um, well, I, I think that uh, that's... Uh, you know, she gets really, like, uncomfortable. She, she kind of tries to justify it as being like, well, if you're going to be the Queen of Celise, then you need to have certain, like, mannerisms. But she's obviously just jealous. So, you know, that's that's cute. And I think, yeah, Lewin gets a love point boost here with Sylvia and also with Eren, although it's a smaller one. So that's that's fun. That's really the only significant things that happens. Uh, Claude and Sigurd have a conversation, but it just establishes some stuff I already talked about last chapter about how you know, Sigurd's sorry that he got Claude involved in this, and Claude's just like, whatever, man, shit happens, we just gotta deal with it. Tail 2 and Azel have a conversation where they get love points together. These guys are kind of pushed as a pairing. I guess if you didn't pair Azel and uh, and Aideen, this is kind of the closest thing you have to a an easy-to-get pairing between Tail 2 and Azel, and they... Have a, actually a really nice interaction here where Tiltu feels very out of place. It's because her dad is Reptor and at this point Reptor is Sigurd's like worst enemy basically. He's ruined Sigurd's life and Tiltu is his daughter and she feels very uncomfortable. You know she feels like people are giving her weird looks and and not talking about Reptor when she's nearby. And Azel kind of puts her mind at ease and says hey, I'm sure that's not true. I think they just don't want to cause you any more grief than you must already be going through. And that's fair. I think that it's pretty safe to assume that that's what's going on. Although I do like to think that maybe there's just a couple of assholes in the army who just kind of like don't like her because she's Reptor's kid. Um, I mean, that's probably not true, but that's just, you know, that's my own personal interpretation. For the most part, I'm sure that they are just unsure of how to broach the topic with her nearby because she's undeniably a little biased. I guess they were—I uh, I remember reading somewhere that these two were childhood friends, but I don't know—I don't think that they say that in this conversation. Maybe maybe it's in a, in a, like a lover conversation next chapter, I have no idea. I'm going to have to be, do a lot of Serenus Forest searching next chapter because there's a whole bunch of different conversations here depending on who you pair, and obviously I can't get all of them because I can only pair each character with one other character, so a lot of it's going to be missing. The Serenus Forest translation is so bad. I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to cause offense to the person who wrote it, but it's just, or the person who, who designed the translation, but come on, man, just, Project Nog has been out for a few years now, just switch it all out, just do it, I'll do it, I'll do it myself, I swear to God, I'll do it, it's just, it's, this, this translation is just so much better, everyone talks normally, everyone, uh, everyone has, like, personality, and isn't just saying, like, weird, inappropriate, non-sequiturs, like, this section there's the conversation uh when when sigurd first meets shannon if era is dead where sigurd just the way he talks is just so inappropriate for the situation he's just like oh, i'm i'm sorry man like it's it's just so i guess unprofessional is is the word uh where he does not treat it with the with the gravity or or weight that it deserves i guess and that it's, it's just a really bad translation. I'm sorry. I don't mean to shit on it, but it's, it's it kind of hinders me because I, that's where I find out maybe, maybe I just need to do a little bit more research. I haven't looked into a more updated script with all the conversations in it. Maybe there is one. I just – I don't know about it. And then I think that is it for conversations, just regular conversations – there are a couple lover conversations here. This is, the, I think, the first instance where if certain characters are paired together, they will have unique dialogue. So Aideen has three here. She has four in total, but one of them isn't until next chapter, at least of, of like this group that kind of gets lumped together. If she's married to Jemk or Medir, she will have a conversation and give them the brave bow or the hero bow. Medir in particular is really cute, because they just talk about how how long they've always wanted to be together, and Aideen's like, I've always wanted to be with you too, and it's just really sweet and wholesome, and I like them together a lot. I don't like Medir very much, I think he's just kind of a boring nothing character, but I think that his interactions with Aideen are really sweet. Jamps, how the fuck do I pronounce that name, is a lot more subdued and a lot less interesting, but it's still fine. And then Azel has a similar interaction with her. Uh, Azel is the third one. She gives him, or sorry, he gives her a rescue staff. And they have a similar interaction where he's like, I've just, I've always wanted to be with you. And ever since I was, a, a ever since the first time I met you, I knew you were the girl for me. And then Aideen, has, you know, it's like, oh, that's so sweet. And they just have a, a cute little interaction there. If she's married to Claude, which I ended up doing, then she will have a conversation with him next chapter, in which he will also give her the rescue staff. Their conversation, I, I mean I guess I'll see it, but I don't remember it being anything noteworthy. Villages. Um, there's a couple here. I don't I forgot to look up what the what it is in this village, what this village talks about. if you don't send it, send Sylvia to it because there's a village here where it has a special interaction if you send Sylvia to it. It's, I'm going to take the gamble, I'm not going to bother looking it up because I, it's probably not interesting, but I guess I could be wrong, if, I, if it really is that interesting I'll, I'll mention it in the, in the next episode, but it probably won't be. So, uh, But if you send Sylvia here, they ask her to do a dance for them and they feel reinvigorated and happier. And they give her a shield sword, which is just, when she has it equipped, she does plus or she has plus five defense, which is nice. I mean, she's pretty frail, and I don't think that's really going to help her, but it might help with some, like, miracle rigging, I guess. She's not having children, so I'll have to pass it to someone else if I want her to pass it down into Gen 2. There's a village that gives a little bit of an explanation on how Holy Blood works, although it's weird i don't know if it's super applicable to most i guess it helps inform the story a little bit but for your your intents and purposes it's not that important there's a village that explains a little bit more on how holy blood works and basically it says that if two like weak diluted holy blood people have a child that child will have stronger holy blood this kind of explains how uh, Deirdre and Arvis are able to have a child uh, who has Major tier blood, and that's, you know, a whole big thing. But it also lets you know that, hey, if you pair Holland and era then their kids will have Major Odo holy Holyblood, uh, which is cool. Although he also says that, you know, obviously having two people from the same bloodline have a child together is obviously very taboo, and you shouldn't do it. And this opens up an interesting can of worms that I don't really want to get into, especially not right now, but this whole idea that FE4 is sometimes criticized for, or at least it's brought up a lot when people criticize the newer games, and it's that FE4 encourages incest, which is a bold claim, not entirely unfounded, although I personally think that's a little bit short-sighted. It is true that you can pair people from the same bloodline you can in gen 2 you can even pair cousins like nana and aries can be paired together uh Larce and, Shan, and uh, shannon is actually kind of pushed a little bit and they're cousins so it's definitely a little uncomfortable at times and and obviously holland and era there's a, like a gameplay benefit to pairing those two which could be seen as sort of condoning it although i would say that at least for, for the cousin stuff i think kaga has gone on record saying that That's just how things were in the Middle Ages a lot of the time. And, you know, he just wanted to replicate that feeling. I think you could also argue that uh, this village, which tells you not to do it, combined with the fact that Arvis and Deirdre doing it literally causes the end of the world and the birth of the Antichrist, I think that that's fair enough to say... No, it really doesn't. But I could definitely see a perspective of yes, it, it kind of does, and it's it's definitely a little bit uncomfortable. I, I kind of wish it was a little bit uh, kiboshed. Uh, I wish it had a little bit of a, of a creative control there taken away, just so that this these uncomfortable questions wouldn't have to be brought up. But I think that's pretty much all I'm going to say about it for the at least until Gen Two. Maybe the rest of the uh, of the playthrough. There's some Crusader lore where a guy just talks about the different uh, the different magic Crusaders, so uh, Tordo, Vala, and uh, Seti, and their respective effects on the world and on on the on the different bloodlines and stuff like that. So yeah, just just flushing that out a little bit. And then there's a, another village that talks about Naga holy blood, which is what Kurth has. And it's apparently the only power that's capable of beating loptir which is going to be important later on. Although I think they bring that up a few times, so if you miss it, it's not a huge deal. Now there is one more village, but before I talk about it, I need to mention that as you get close to this first castle, they lower a drawbridge, or they, I guess they bring up a drawbridge, so you can't cross the river. And if you're not paying attention, this is a fucking nightmare. Because basically it means that um, you have to go all the way back down to where you were cross the mountains which takes forever and only if you're on horseback only promoted horseback units can do it in fact i'm not even sure if anyone besides promoted horseback units can do it it's very obnoxious and then of course they have to go all the way back down that same method which is just takes so long but there is a way around this and a guy in a village gives you a hint about that he just says that if you have a thief you can lower the drawbridge again, so if you have Dew stand in the right spot, you can lower the drawbridge. That's pretty well hinted at. I missed that my first playthrough, so I unfortunately was not able to do that, but it is what it is. Of course if your Dew is dead, then that won't be any help to you either, but you know, hopefully he's not, (laughs) otherwise it's just a pain in the ass. So you can capture this first castle once you do that, and in it you find out a little bit about the perspective of the people, which is that the guy who, I, I forget the, the first uncle's name, but he's basically a tyrant, and everyone hated him, and it turns out that everyone just likes the queen. Queen Rana is very well adored by her citizenry, and just shows that she's just a really good queen, and very kind to her people, and just earns a lot of love and respect, which is cool. Some some nice character building there. At this point, uh, Zaxxon decides that it's time to attack, and they send a squad of Pegasus knights out to attack the capital and there's some yellow npcs yellow npcs we've seen a couple times now they're they're what the game considers neutral where they're not on your side i mean narratively they might be but they're you know they kind of just act doing whatever they want you cannot kill them because they're not technically your enemy but you also can't move past them so a lot of the time the game will use them to block choke points so you can't move by basically these guys are considered yellow units, so you kind of just have to watch as, as this plays out. And they seem to be doing pretty well for themselves, actually. You see them fight for a few turns as you move Sigurd and everyone else down. And uh, Manya is in charge of the yellow units, and they're doing pretty well. Uh, this Pegasus Knight group that they're fighting doesn't really stand a chance against them. I mean, I guess the leader's kind of tough. But then bad things happen. Uh, they, they have a, a Manya and, and Pamela, who's the leader of the other group has a conversation, they have a conversation together, and it's not really that memorable, but I I think that they, um, it's just some lore, I guess Pamela is kind of a big deal around, around this area. Then, Andre shows up, and Andre is leading a core of Bow Knights, basically, and of course, Pegasus plus Bow Knight equals bad time, and it might take a bit, Pamela was actually, or, uh, Manya was actually putting up a pretty good fight, but eventually she does die. And Celice is captured by them. After Manya dies, there's some, some cutaways to a few different characters, uh, Rana, Lewin, and Eren. I don't know if it says it explicitly in this patch, but from the, from the, um, Serenus Forest translation, I, I know that it's, at least, uh, some, some translations have, have made it explicit. Uh, Manya was Eren's sister, so this is a big deal for them and then obviously Lewin knew her very well because she was the leader of the Pegasus Knight Squadron, so they they got get along together So everyone's just really affected by this and it's a big deal Lewin, you could see this I think as kind of a turning point for his character because this is where he starts to take himself a lot more seriously and I mean even even against if you have him fight his first uncle He's kind of joking around. He's really not taking this all that seriously, but as soon as Mon uh, as soon as Manya dies his dialogue becomes a lot more serious, and, and he's, I guess, less goofy and and less of a jokester, and actually seems to be trying, and and this this had a, a profound impact on him, as we'll see. After Salis gets captured, a couple things happen. So Dakar sends a group of Pegasus Knights, the Pamela's Pegasus Knights, up to capture Zaxan, the northern castle, and they're not really that hard to deal with. I mean, they have higher mobility. And it can be difficult, especially if you meet them like in the forest, it can be kind of hard to maneuver around them, but you shouldn't have too much of a problem taking them down, especially if you have like Madeira or Jampk up there to deal with them or Brigid. And then the other thing that happens is uh, some civilians uh, run out of Salice, or the capital I should say. And these civilians are green units who are going to get attacked by the enemy. And if you rescue them, if you, if you go up to a unit and hit the rescue command, then you that unit will automatically get exactly 100 experience. So this is a good way to get some underpowered units up. I gave a few, I think there's six in total. I think I gave like, I gave four of them to Azel. I remember that much. And then I gave like one to Era maybe, and then one to Aaron or something. I don't know, something like that. And yeah, so that's that's pretty easy. It's, it's really not that hard. I think one of them got attacked like twice, and I don't know what the hit chances on him were, but... He dodged both times, so it wasn't I don't think it could have been that high. Maybe you have to reset if you get unlucky, but then you can just arena rig, so. I'm not, I, I should make this clear, by the way, that as as much as I talk about like reloading save files and burning random number generators, I'm only doing it because the game allows it. I'm not using save states. I will never use save states in this, even in games where I might really, really want to, just because I feel like that's antithetical to the way that the games are designed, and I'm not trying to say like, oh, you have to play without save states, you have to play without speed up. I'm not even playing without speed up. But I do think there's something to be said, at least for the purposes of a retrospective, to playing the games the way that they were designed and the way that they were intended. So I'm going to be trying to do that for the most part. But obviously they intended for you to be able to save every turn, so I think that that's fine. I think that's fair game. Once you retake Salice. Lewin and Sigurd have a conversation that's really nice, and, and it shows that uh, Lewin sort of blames himself for this. He, he feels that Manya made a sacrifice that he would have had to make, or at least that he she got put in the position that he would have been in if he had actually been there for his country and his mom, and he blames himself entirely, and it's it, just, it shows how he's matured a lot. I do think it's maybe a little bit of a jump, but I'm not going to nitpick that just because there's only so much that you can show a character's thoughts in this game, so I don't think it's unreasonable to have, like, a little bit of a leap in logic, but, you know, it, there's a there's a good progression here that I, I think is well-earned. And then um, Sigurd tells him, this is the second instance that, that the game tells you to have Lewin visit the capital because his mom wants to talk to him. So you go there with Lewin, and Lewin gets Forseti. Well, I guess before before he gets Forseti, he's talking about how he's going to stay in Selyse and he's, he's going to be there for her no matter what, but he but uh, the queen, Rana, decides to tell him, you can go with Sigurd. I want you to join Sigurd. I want you to see the world, and I want you to guide the world on a path of peace. And there's some, some lore here. I kind of talked about this earlier, but basically she talks about how the wind god is all about peace and violence is not his way, and he just wants to guide the world in unity. So I think that Lewin really takes this moment to heart. and I mean, I think that you could pinpoint this as being the moment that that defines the entire rest of his character for the rest of the game. So this is important. This is a big deal. But then, of course, the other reason it's important is because he gets Forseti. And Forseti is fucking wild. It is a legendary weapon, just like Gaebolg and, and Ufell. I think those are the only two we have up to this point. I guess Valkyria. But it is a tome, which means it's 1-2 range. It's the only one that's like this, I think, at all. I don't think any of the other ones are 1-2 range. Maybe Gungnir, which is not... Like, you can't use that. That's enemy only. Or, I guess, NPC only. It hits on enemy resistance, which is a big deal, because enemy resistance is very low, and it gives him a ridiculous plus 20 speed and plus 10 skill, which is nothing to sneeze at either, because he has critical. So... That's a automatically baseline 10% chance to crit every time. But I think it also, obviously, he has base skill. And then, of course, if he gets any skill level ups. So it's probably closer to like 25 or 30% chance to crit. And, of course, his speed is through the roof. So he has probably about a, I haven't promoted him yet. But once he promotes and he's close to it, I think he's going to have about a 50-50 shot at proccing Adept just every time. So it's, it's become fairly reliable that he's going to proc adept i mean you can't obviously bank on it every single time but if you need lewin to proc adept and it like there are riskier moves you could take in terms of you know needing something to happen and yeah this is that's kind of just i, I don't want to say that that's the end of lewin's character arc because there's more more to him in gen 2 but it's uh we'll talk about that when we get there Aaron and Lewin have a conversation here, and this is the one that I was talking about a few episodes ago, where they get really high amount of love points. I think it's 290, and they have, like, a very... I think they have, like, base 200 or something like that, or something very close to it. So it's practically guaranteed to marry them on the spot. And, you know, especially if they've been together for, for all of chapter 3 and now 4, so... It's very likely that they will get married as soon as this conversation's over. I mean, I think explicitly he says, I love you, Aaron, which would be kind of awkward if he got married to someone else. Uh, unfortunately, I tried to look up the content of this conversation and I was able to find it on Serenus Forest, but the, the translation was just, this is the first instance of the translation being so bad on the Serenus Forest that it just undermines a lot of the weight of the scene and... Well, actually, there were other instances of it, but I was able to see those in the Project Naga patch and just recount those, like the Shannon conversation I was talking about earlier uh, where Sigurd's talking to Shannon. I saw that. Or no, no, I didn't actually because Arrow wasn't dead. Never mind. I don't know what I'm talking about. But my point is that I didn't, I, it just didn't feel right. I really wanted to get this conversation myself. I looked for it everywhere. I could not find this version of it. I someone's got to tell me if it's good. I really I want to believe it's good, but the Serenis Forest version is just it's not it's not great. It's not fantastic. So uh, unfortunately, that's uh, that's all I have to say about that. It's it's I feel like it should be such a powerful moment between the two. Uh, her sisters died, and Lewin has taken up his responsibility as being the king of this country, and. They've been through so, through so much together, both before this and now going through this together. It's a big deal, but the Serenus Forest version is just not good. <laughs> I'm sorry, I really, I am I, done harping on this un- until another instance of this comes up, but it's just really bad, and I don't mean any disrespect. I'm sure that at the time it was the best we had access to, and I thank that person for doing God's work, but it's we have we have better technology now we have a better translation put it in there guys come on and then of course uh sigurd captures zach uh Zac- zaxon the eastern castle that's the last castle andre left by the way he left a little while ago i didn't mention that but once he fucked up the pegasus knight core they kind of just ran away and yeah i think lewin has a conversation with him where he just gets really mad and that's the end of the chapter pretty much as soon as you capture this castle. So Sigurd has decided that it is time for him to attack Greinbale. He's tried the peaceful option. He's tried the diplomatic choice. It's just not working. And he's sick and tired of it. And also, the longer he stays here, as soon as Andre got involved, he realized, all right, now my presence here is hurting the people of Solis, and I don't want that at all. So I'm going to leave... And we're going to fuck up Grantville real bad. And we're going to take my, my, I guess we're going to clear my name by force, which seems kind of contradictory, but I get where he's coming from. He, do- he doesn't have any other options at this point. And that's the end of the chapter. I think that this map is great in terms of story, gameplay, whatever. There's some cool moments. I like some of the, the bosses are fun to fight, but just Okay. The narrative here is fantastic. This is the first really, really good story in a chapter so far in this game, which is a shame that it's coming towards the end of the first half, but, you know, whatever. Well, I'll take what I can get. Now, I think that there are a few key differences between this and some other chapters. First of all, I think that you could definitely say that this chapter is about Lewin, in the same way that I would argue chapters 2 and 3 are about Eldagon. The difference is that Lewin is a much more compelling character than Eldegon. Even up to this point, obviously there's more to come, but even just talking about chapters 2, 3, and and now 4, Lewin is a way more interesting character than Eldegon. Not only does he have a, a more interesting and immediately charismatic personality, there's a natural progression to his arc that you can see and understand how he got from point A to point B. Again, a little bit of a leap at points, but it's fine. It's not something... It's not, like, unreasonable, you know? Whereas I think that Eldegon was just so, like, all over the place. And I think that they were trying to show him being conflicted, but it came across as him being just really easily persuaded. I feel like there's a lot of filling in the gaps with your own mind that you have to do in both of these characters' arcs. But in Eldegon especially, you have to make some assumptions about him and what's going on in his head that I don't necessarily think are super obvious. I mean, I've made them just because I think that it's the most generous interpretation, and I wanted to give him a generous interpretation of him being conflicted and not being sure what to do and kind of just finally deciding, all right, well, I'm going to do this. But I think if you look at it from another perspective, it's just he says one thing, then contradicts himself five minutes later, and then contradicts himself again. It's, you know, there's is, is another way you can look at it is what I'm trying to say. So as a character, I guess character study isn't the right word, But as a story and an arc for a character, this works way better. It's like a—it sets it up really well. His conversation with his mom at the beginning is great. He goes through—you know, he he fights his first uncle, not really taking it seriously, but sort of, you know, things are starting to get crazy. Then Manya dies, and everything changes, and it's just—you can see his thought process and his emotional process there's a great capstone at the end where he professes his love to Aaron. I think that I don't really I don't think the idea of of playing this with the canon pairing in mind is necessarily the right way to go about it because I think that the best part about this game is having so much flexibility in what you can do with these with these kids in the next generation. But I think that this is a really for for a game with this structure and with so few dialogue for its supporting cast, this is about as solid of a love story as you can get, and it's great. I think that the game tries to do other love stories. It tries to do, obviously, Sigurd and Deirdre. Later on we'll see Ares and either Layla or Lean, depending on if you had uh, Sylvia married or not, and none of them hit the same way as this. This just, it feels like the natural progression for these characters, and I buy it completely which is great. Speaking of Sylvia, by the way, I forgot to mention this. I, I got a lot of my pairings done, and all of the ones are ones that I wanted. The only pa- the only mom at this point who is not paired is Brigid, and I was gonna not pair Sylvia, but there's something that can happen, especially with Sylvia, I noticed. I think it's because she has so many love point conversations, but it's very easy to accidentally marry her to someone, uh, usually Lewin. Although this time, in this case, it, it happened with Alec because they have a conversation in Chapter 2 that I did. Didn't think anything of it. I just was like, okay, 100 love points is not going to make a difference. It definitely did, which is unfortunate. I think, honestly, there's a good chance Bridget will get married too at some point because I don't think Madeira's is paired. So I'm going to try to kill them off at the end of, at the end of Gen 5 or uh, end, at end of Chapter 5 to make sure that I get the substitutes because I really want to play with some sub- substitutes this chapter this playthrough. I'm a fucking mess right now, <laughs> but you know what I mean. There are no more characters in Gen 1, by the way. No more Parable Moms in the rest of the game, for that matter, because obviously there's no Generation 3. We'll get more characters in Gen 2, but none of them will have... You can marry them, but it doesn't really make much of a difference mechanically. Lewin and his mom's conversation where he gives or she gives him Forseti is really nice. They make up. They really just establish them as being really important to each other and they, they get through the anger and they have some they still have some fun dialogue they still quip at each other but they're really they've got a new under a newfound respect and understanding and love for each other and that's really cool to see one thing I forgot to mention at the very end of when you capture the last castle is that Sigurd and and Rana will have a conversation and I actually I made note of this before Sigurd mentioned it but There's a very strong mother-son vibe going on here, and I think that Sigrid Sigrid even draws attention to it, uh, saying that my mom died when I was very young, and it's been really great to have you because it feels like you're the mother I never had. I I feel like I'm feeling a mother's love for the first time, and that's a very powerful emotion. And I felt it, you know? I I definitely think that she was being very worried about him, being very preoccupied, and I have to wonder if there's some level... Because she's she's drawn direct parallels between Lewin and Sigurd previously. Saying, like, oh, I wish I had a son like Sigurd. You know, I would like Lewin to become someone like Sigurd. And I have to wonder if maybe there's just some level of, like, oh, you're the son that I wish I had. I especially think that this would be interesting if Lewin was dead. Obviously, canonically, he's not dead. But... It's a fun interpretation, you know. Like, if you consider every person's playthrough a little bit different, they're like their own separate canon or whatever. Then, in the in the universe's "quote unquote" Relumen is dead. Then I could see this as being like a, you know, she's trying to project her her motherly feelings onto someone new because she's lost her only son. I don't know. Stuff like that interests me. And that's really all I have to say about the story of this map. I think it's fantastic. I think that it almost single handedly Makes up for the past four chapters of, sorry, the past three chapters of nothing, and then one chapter of like pretty good. It's it's great, it's fantastic, and I love it, and I can't wait to move forward and and experience more. Now, in terms of our map gauntlet, we kind of have to put all that aside. I I do want to have a a system where I can. Because gameplay story integration is a big deal in some games. And I think that it's something that I should reward in this system. So I I don't think that I can ignore the narrative completely when it comes to these maps. I think the standout example for me, and maybe the best example of story gameplay integration in any of these games, is Chapter 19 of Thracia, which I won't spoil, but basically Leaf makes a... uh, makes a a decision that results in his army being split in half. And one half has to run up the map to the escape point, and Leaf and his whole crew are already at the escape point. So you can choose to leave them behind, or try to get them up, or maybe try to get some of them up and leave some of them behind, and it's great. And obviously when I get to that map, I'm going to take that into consideration, because that's a way that the gameplay mechanics and the structure of the map is enhancing the story, or vice versa maybe, I don't know, maybe both, but that doesn't really happen here. The gameplay and the story aren't integrated in any meaningful way, I guess other than Lewin getting Forsetti and that being like symbolic of he's finally ready to take his place as king, basically, but other than that, not really a whole lot in that department, so as much as I like the story, I have to look at this as a pure gameplay experience, and as a pure gameplay experience, it's whatever. I don't think it's... I think it's, like, about the same level as, like, Prologue, maybe. I don't know. It's it's maybe a little bit better. It's fine. It still has that very linear approach where you're just going in one direction. Then once you capture the first castle, you're going in another direction. There's never more than one thing to do except, I think, when Thov gets attacked and you're also having to save the civilians. That's the only instance I can think of. You're never getting attacked by more than one group of enemy, or if you are, they're coming from the same direction, so you just have to deal with a bigger group of enemies at the same time, I guess. So yeah, I mean, I guess there's some stuff here that makes it better than Prologue. It's, it's It has some moments that are interesting in that regard. The Pegasus Knights are having finding ways to deal with the Pegasus Knights as they're able to so easily maneuver around you while you're kind of bogged down by the forests and stuff. That's nice. That's interesting, and I like that. So I think for that alone, it's probably better than prologue. And by not being an active chore, as long as you have due, I think it's better than chapter one and chapter two. Although I should probably take into consideration how much of a fucking nightmare it is if you don't have due, because some people will just not have due. Either he'll be dead, or they won't understand what they have to have him do. Yeah, I don't think that it's fair to ignore that side of things and to ignore the experience of people like that even though it is pretty strongly hinted that you have to use them somehow you might not be able to figure it out and if that's the case then you have to go all the way down and then cross mountains which takes forever it's like i can't stress it it's like it's like doing the trek from from the from the castle Anthony in chapter 2 all the way down to uh, the chapter or the castle near the bottom that Trek that everyone hates, it's like doing that twice or maybe even four times because you have to go up and down. And I think it takes about twice as long. So I don't know. It's, it's a nightmare and I don't like it, but I don't think it's, it's, I think most people aren't going to have that experience. And if they do, it's probably on them as a player, although I can definitely understand it not being that way. So I don't know. It's not beating Chapter 3, that's the long and short of it. I just, I'm, I'm trying to like, I'm making like a mental map of the rankings of these in my head, and I definitely think it's better than Chapters 1 or 2, and I guess I would say if you don't have do, it's worse than Prologue. If you do have do and are able to figure out how to use him to lower the drawbridge, then it's better than Prologue. So either way, it's kind of like in that same ballpark, but that's just my opinion. Either way, I do think Chapter 3 is a lot better. Again, Chapter 3, probably going to take the whole thing at the end of the day, at least for this game. So yeah, that's really all I have to say about that. And with no kids to talk about this time around, I guess that is it. So hope you enjoyed your time here, ladies and gentlemen. I'll be back next week, maybe, I don't know, probably not actually, to talk about Chapter 5, which is going to be a doozy. Last chapter of Gen 1, that's a big deal. So I'm excited. Take care, guys. Thank